Welcome to Leaders in Conversation, a series of podcasts in which leaders share their inspirational, personal leadership stories, insights and wisdom with me, Annie Townend. In this episode, I'm delighted to be in conversation with Dougal Fleming. Welcome, Dougal. Thank you, Annie. Yeah, really happy to be here with you and uh, sharing this link. I'm delighted to have this conversation with you. I know you, Dougal, through the wonderful kitchen design business that you lead with your father, Alistair Fleming Design, in our local town, Lewis, East Sussex, in the UK. I also know you through walking and talking with you and some of your family once a year on a community walk and through your involvement with Feature Kitchen. Through knowing you in these ways, I know you to be passionate about connecting business, customers and the environment through the circular economy. Today, I would really like to talk with you about leadership and the circular economy, about the butterfly diagram, which explains the circular economy and donut economics, as well as your love of adventuring and supporting in particular, young men through, as you call it, the beautiful game, football. <laughs> but I'd like to begin, Dougal, with who and what has shaped you in your leadership, in particular, what you stand for by way of your values and beliefs and the way in which you do business, starting with where you grew up, your family and the people who have influenced and continue to shape you in your life your key relationships, and your collaborations. Wow, there's quite a lot to tuck into there, isn't there? There is, there is. Well, you're up to a lot of really wonderful things and you probably wouldn't be doing some of them if it weren't for the way in which you were brought up and also where you were brought up and how you grew up. Yeah, certainly. Yeah, I've been blessed with a lot of energy, which I attribute to my mother, who has sort of boundless energy, even at 70 now. Uh, she sort of has her moments where she might take a rest here and there, but it's a, it's a fairly res relentless and I'd say focused energy. And that is, of course, always the challenge is to kind of concentrate it. Um, and, yeah, from my father's side, he's a very kind of um, detail-driven focused but also very wise man and, and full of integrity so I'd like to think I oscillate in between the two <laughs> those who know me might disagree but uh, yeah that's where I like to think I am anyway it's a great combination isn't it because I often talk with leaders and their teams about the importance of bringing both energy and focus and that in our leadership we need that rich mix of focus of having something which we are working towards a vision of success and we need energy and of course it's good to hear that your mother does from time to time take moments of rest uh, as well because we do need time to refuel to recharge and to do that in in nature and also with each other how do you recharge you've got all this boundless energy Dougal yeah well a bit like her I almost recharge from other people from being in groups whether they be small where you're having intimate and intense conversations or whether they be big groups where it's really just the fact that you're all in one space 
you know, co-spiring that uh, I get my energy from those from those times. And I guess I've been brought up in the countryside. Um, wasn't my choice to be, but that that transition from Lewis, where I spend a lot of my time, to the to the village where I live, there's a sort of three mile journey. And I guess in in that transition between the two places, I switch into different modes, which will be wide open space, big skies, fresh air, greenery, and you know the town. Growing up, I had a few different identities. At age thirteen, I was known as Prince Harry because I looked a bit like Prince Harry, and that informed a huge amount of my school life. You know, no bad thing to look like Prince Harry, I suppose, but some of the controversies that he was up to meant that it was a sort of uh, poison chalice. And then I, I was called Alex at the time. I moved away from the name Dougal, which I was given by my father after a Scottish hiker and adventurer. Uh-huh. So I used Alex for a long time, or Alexander. And I, I used that continually through my travels in Europe and South America and, uh, and elsewhere, because Alex translates more easily. But I've gone back to Dougal as a kind of Celtic name from living in Ireland. I tried to create three different identities subconsciously, but ultimately I'm the same person in amongst all of it. I know you to be Dougal. Mm. And uh, tell me more about this person, Dougal. Mm. I often in some of the group teamwork that I do, I invite people to say a few things about themselves through their name. I too really believe in the power of the group, of co-spiring with others, as you call it, which I love. And one of the things that I discovered through inviting people to say something about who they are through their name, it's really opens up reflections on who they are. Mm. And I think being able to answer that question, who am Mm. I, is so important. And you may not know that I haven't always been called Annie. No. What what else have you been so known as? I grew up being called Anne, Anne with an E, until I was 18 years old. Right. And I went away to uh, study and somebody sent me a postcard in the day that we used to send postcards from our travels. Yeah. And I received this postcard and it was addressed to me, Annie, Townend and Annie was spelled A double N I. And I really, really liked it. Yeah. And I thought, that's who I am. I'm Annie. I've always been Townend. And mm. the only person who still calls me Anne is my mum. Uh, up until three years ago, it was my mum and dad. And he died three years ago. And my mum still calls me Anne. Anne, but my children call me Annie, and obviously you know me as Annie as well. Annie with an I. There's small changes that can take on a new persona, can't they? I mean, I was born as Dougal and raised as Dougal, and quite early at primary school, I was like, I don't like that name anymore. It's, you know, people would sort of laugh at it, and it was an unusual name, very Scottish name. eh? for For a southerner such as myself, I didn't really suit very well, so... No, I changed it to Alex, which was my middle name. My auntie and my grandma were the only two people who refused to stop calling me Dougal. And everyone else converted. But my grandma was just saying, "I'm, you know, darling, I'm not going to stop. I'm going to have to keep calling you Dougal. And my auntie Mary, who's my godmother, much the same, 
So when I went to live out in Ireland as an outdoor instructor and learn and trained kayaking, rock climbing, hiking, mountaineering, and all the other skills that I learned out there, Mary kept calling me Dougal. And although I was being called Alex, being as English as I am and being called Alex didn't didn't probably wear as well as being Dougal and a bit more Celtic. And so other people started to call me Dougal. And I thought, well, do you know what? Maybe I'll switch back to that. And I was probably 21, 22 when that happened. And yeah, ever since I've kind of, I've worn it and I've been proud of it and I kind of like it again. Um, but it, it, it's difficult for people who, for whom English isn't their native tongue because they call me sure. Dugal or Dougal or Dougal or something like that. So I use, whenever I, I lived in Spain, France, Italy, Chile, Ecuador, travelled to Greenland and so on and always tried to learn the language and I'd introduce myself as Alejandro or Alessandra or Alessandro and that always broke down barriers because then you can associate it to someone from their own culture called that. So. Yeah, I feel myself to be Annie, Annie Townend, and to have grown into myself through working on myself, through working with people like yourself, and that journey of discovering, adventuring inwards as well as outwards. You um, mentioned there your grandmother and your auntie. Who were some of the other influences and how have they shaped you, Dougal, into this identity, you who you are, the leader who you are today? Well, I guess obviously mum and dad are the starting point. Mum comes from, her mother was a, was a Quaker or came from a Quaker background and her father came from, a, from a, a Marxist where they were contemporaries of Marx, so sort of Jewish, German industrialists. And they created my mum. And it's quite an interesting family tree that way back. But essentially, that's what gives my mum this, this energy for community over and above almost anything else, really. From my dad's side, he has a Scottish father, um, Presbyterian and Protestant ministers came together and, and made his father. And my, and my grandmother was French, Scottish aristocrat. And they... Yeah, they made my dad. So those are the kind of influences that I have from, from my parents. And certainly my, my mum's an only child, so it has all of those, you know, nuances. And my dad is one of four and has a big family. And so that is my connection to family, which is absolutely integral, comes strongly from his side, even though I was very close to my mother's mum never met my mother's father who sounded like quite a character and I think I embody some of his characteristics but certainly my my auntie both my aunties and my uncle have massively informed my belief of what is possible so my auntie in Ireland runs an adventure center my uncle in Belize set up in in the jungle 40 years ago and started farming and has made what I would describe as a jungle paradise um, my auntie in Hampshire has, has four sons and she's, you know, just the most wonderful person and embodies a lot of the same values and beliefs that my grandma does, as well, I suppose they all do. Mm. So having those influences and all of their children, all my cousins and grandchildren now and so on, my value and belief structure is steeped in that. The, the integrity, the commitment towards seeing every single person, not just the exterior but trying to see their soul I fundamentally believe I've always believed this every single person is the best in the world at something 
It's a case of trying to find what it is. And I don't know what I'm the best in the world at yet. And I'm having a lot of fun trying to find out what it is. But some people you just know, I mean, my partner, Mia, she is born to do what she does. And it's incredibly powerful. So seeing that is a key relationship, you know, being close to somebody for whom they can concentrate all of their energy on bringing the change that they want to be is is really quite powerful. For listeners who don't know your partner, Dougal, what is it that she does that has you absolutely know she's doing what she was born to do? So Mia is a, she's a home birth midwife. And when I met her, I was sort of, I remember being rocked to the core just a little bit, you know, I'm, I'm pretty well rooted, but it was a strong breeze came in when she said that and kind of explained a bit about herself. And she brings a sort of deep wisdom, commitment, fierce belief in the, in the way that women should be allowed to and how birth should be facilitated to happen. And she's not the, the, the holder of that vision. It's, it's the women and the way they want to birth. But often they're just, there's not the information around how we have birthed from time immemorial. You know, one of the things we all share is that we, are, we come from an unbroken lineage of life. All of our ancestors have reproduced. Whether you choose to in this life or not is, is obviously down to yourself and, and sometimes not, obviously. Yes. But she is born to be in that space at the very portal of, of, of birth. And it's powerful. It's beautiful. And mm. I learn a lot from her. So, yeah. That's lovely to hear. And you yourself have children with Mia. And what are the values that you hope that they are learning from you and from Mia as they grow up? I think I had that vision before I became a parent. I thought, I'll teach my children integrity and honesty and truth and all the rest of it. No, it's you can't. They just come in with their own agenda. And the only two things I ever try or ever are conscious of is to love them and manifest mm-hmm. that. So to, to try to remove the barriers of my love towards them whilst not being overbearing and to support them to be themselves. Mm. And I think anything else is folly, to be honest. (laughs) I love that, to to love them and support them to be their best, really. And it sounds from the work that you do with young men, particularly through the beautiful game football, that this is something that you extend out beyond your family into the community, Dougal? It's, it comes from, again, mum and dad who've always been there and done that for me. And for that, you know, I'm eternally grateful. I can come from this place of being having the capacity to, well, to love playing football, to love playing it with people who I play it with, and to try to support them to be better at what they do. For me, it was always about uh, being gentlemen on and off the pitch to each other, to the ref, to the opposition. It wasn't always possible. Uh, and I was sometimes the first person to break those rules. But I'd really try and instill, instill them in the rest of the team to be more than just footballers. Um, the other thing is that will to win. You, know, you have mm-hmm. to have that will to win. And that is a really difficult part because some people like myself and four or five other players will run through a brick wall to win. Other players 
they want to play football. They just they just want to pass the ball around and do some nice stuff. So I would always try and impart that desire um, if it wasn't there sufficiently. And then the next thing is that consistency and the quality. So in these young lads who are all going through changes and shifts mm-hmm. and patterns in their behavior and lives and bodies and relationships, it's about consistency and quality. How do you play your best game over and over again? You're always going to have those players who can run a game and be nine out of 10, but I don't want them turning up and being a six or a five the next week. I almost want a team who can consistently do that. And you never get that. Of course, a team is is beautifully made up of individuals and whoever, whoever can be available on the morning. But um, I've played football all my life and it's always been a key. Um, it's a big key activity to break down barriers, to establish friendship um, rivalry, friendly rivalry, but also competition. Growing up, I I always thought that was kind of inherently just what what men wanted and did, and and that's how we socialise shoulder to shoulder, as opposed to the more sort of perhaps feminine face to face. But it's incredibly inspiring and powerful to now live in Lewis, where we have the women's team as they do, and and being led in the way it's being led, and and standing for so much more than football. Football is totally the byproduct of the change. Essentially, that's it brings me deep sense of pride, being born and bred in Lewis, to see that my team is making national headlines because of their stance on gender equality, on racial equality, on closing the pay gap, and so many things, on not taking sponsorship from gambling companies and instead favouring ethical companies. You know, it really is powerful, powerful stuff. Uh, and then to be in the second league in, in the country is, again, another thing. So it, just, it goes to show that it, it can be done if you identify the right opportunity and stand for the right yeah. purpose. So those values and beliefs, I learn from those and try to incorporate them into my own way of being. It's wonderful to hear, Dougal, not least as a owner of the football club and somebody who has never been to a football match in Lewis. And yet I'm so proud uh, to have spoken with Karen Dobres on this podcast. Uh, She has been one of my leaders in conversation and to know about and to support all of the great work that is being done and is being talked about and shouted out about Mm. um, through football as a a means of social change and of bringing awareness and change in all the ways that you've described. What can leaders learn from you and from your experience of adventuring, from your upbringing and how do you bring this to your passion for circular economy and the butterfly diagram, which explains the circular economy? For many listeners, this may be a new way of thinking. And it would be wonderful to hear, Dougal, what is the circular economy? Why does it matter? And why now more than ever um, do we need to be thinking in this way? For me, it was a complete game changer seeing the circular economy. How can I help other leaders change? There are three key principles to the circular economy, which I think are really powerful. And one which is to the procurement of materials and resources. Where do they come from? 
And how do we make sure that the energy we procure is is ethical, renewable, and is in tune with the planet? The next one is to ensure longevity. So when you design something or make something, that it lasts for a long time. And the offshoot of that is to redesign it and redesign it and keep it at its optimal use for as long as possible. The third thing, and perhaps most important and most under-discussed, is to be regenerative to the biosphere through design. And what that means is that through your business activity, you are benefiting nature and animals. In, in any business, you have profit and the incentives of the business. And then you have the what you deliver to your customer and the benefit that they achieve from that. What often doesn't get taken into account is how that affects the natural world. And that I truly believe through understanding the circular economy, it's a way of unleashing yourself from the commonly accepted linear economic model, which is to take resources, make them into things, deliver them to people for them to be used, do a bit of recycling and and, and reusing. But ultimately, they end up in landfill. You know, we all empty a bag a week of rubbish out of our house that goes to either be burnt or thrown into a landfill site. And that is not replicated anywhere else in nature. That's the problem. So how does that tie into my life as an adventurer? Well, I spent nearly, I got I got away with nearly a decade of being an outdoor instructor, traveling around Europe and South America, hiking, cycling, skiing, kayaking, mountaineering, getting paid season to season in various different villages, trying to blend in as a six foot four white Englishman, trying to sort of, you know, make friends and, and learn languages and understand culture uh, from, a, from a sort of, from a, a humble place of, of wanting to learn their language. That was primarily, I went to these places using adventure sport as the, as the tool, as is football is doing in Lewis right now. Adventure sport was the way I was getting under the surface. My aim was to learn the language. And what happened as a result of that was I became immersed in these perpetual natural conversations. Nature is through the seasons, through its changing, you know, wind and tide and rain and all the rest of it. It's perpetually having these conversations. Animals speak it inherently. A spider knows when the rain is coming. It scutters up the tree. And noticing that awoke a conversation or a language that I could speak but had never really been able to become fluent in. And this was the most powerful and profound realisation that came out of of this period of, of time, was making space in my day to see these things happen. Why is lichen growing on the north side of the tree, not the south side? You know, that tree is growing at an angle because of the wind noticing all of those things whether it's true or not didn't really make any difference it was seeing them making that narrative in my head bringing meaning to it and then keeping on doing that um i'll never forget the moment it really dropped i was the top of this like waterfall two trees either side standing on a ledge and it's this point in ireland um where we would go uh, canyoning you know dress up in wetsuits helmets buoyancy aids and we'd jump into the river and I 
I held on to these two trees and I jumped off, you know, into the plunge. <laughs> and as I got out, I noticed there was a circle of ferns, perfect circle of like eight ferns. And in the middle was this little rock pool. And all these ferns were collecting water and dropping them into this little rock pool very, very gently, very gradually. And I looked into that rock pool and I don't know why or what was going on, but something said the meaning of life is in there, in that microcosm. And so I kind of gave it, you know, a couple of minutes staring in this tiny little rock pool, with this clear water and these little minerals floating around and mm. smashing rain. It's making space to try to reawaken our, our ear to those natural conversations that our ancestors could speak and had to speak. But we, through civilization, have have quietened. We quieten that conversation down. Technology, for all its benefits and wonder and beauty, has meant that we hunch our backs over and tap our phones instead of lifting our necks up and breathing in the air and feeling the, the moisture on, on the hairs on our neck and so on. What I try to do through the adventure tours is to reawaken those senses and reawaken people to those senses, to rewild oneself, to take ourselves out of civilization and tap into that. That sounds wonderful, Dougal. And I'm wondering how that can be applied to leaders and their organizations, and in particular, leaders listening to our conversation. How can they apply some of that noticing and listening and paying attention to in the kind of bringing the circular economy and the adventuring mm. into their business to their customers and the environment in which they are operating in, be that a global environment or a local environment. And perhaps you could talk about that through your own business, Alistair Fleming Design, that you co-spire with your father and a team on and how you yourself, through your leadership, bring these principles into practice. It really isn't easy because ultimately it sort of flies in the face. The traditional way of doing business is that you clock in Monday to Friday, nine to five, and you do what you need to do, work through a to-do list, which is essentially never-ending, to make money. You know, we all need money to live. And whilst that might not be the end in itself, it's the reason why we get up. And it's the reason why we go to work, because we need to buy these things. So with that in mind, the need to make money is perpetual. However, what I think is shifting, and certainly the circular economy has an element of this to it, is do we want perpetual growth? Are we interested in GDP next to time and seeing that, that diagram perpetually go up? What the circular economy and the donut economic model tells us is that there are, there are loads of other things to consider in there. There's lots of other opportunities and ways of making money and contributing to the overall revenue of a business whilst being more aware, responsible, and sensitive towards the environment. So the most powerful thing for me, from where I am right now, is to be regenerative through your business practices. 
And that is not an easy thing because our society and our economy is not set up to facilitate businesses to be regenerative through design. How that manifests, um, I think, is to find an area of nature, whether it be the woods, the rivers, the fields, the hedges, the downs, in our case, spaces which resonate with you and that you can make space in your weekly calendar or monthly calendar to go with your team and have vital conversations. And while those conversations are occurring, you are giving back to contributing and benefiting the natural environment in which you live. And I think through doing that, you make space for these natural conversations that I've alluded to, to occur. I understand that is idealistic and maybe not always possible, but I really believe that the closer we are to nature, the more in tune we are, the better decisions we will make, the further removed we are, the more we will go down this route of, you know, profit and growth at all costs. I think that was what my time as an outdoor instructor kind of was about, was about going out into the wilderness and trying to understand what's happening with nature, a rebellion against going into the city and earning money as a business, whoever, whatever. It was about trying to understand what nature's saying. Well, in hindsight, that's what it was anyway. We should have shaman in positions of government. We should have people who who are who speak the language of the earth in, in charge of corporations, or at least in those decision-making rooms. Um and how, how you find those people? I mean, there are people out there who can who can help. I mean, there's um, there's lo- lots of leaders around here, as you know, in our locality, who do that. Yourself, Annie is one, and um, Marina Rob Circle of Life Rediscovery is another. She she helps to 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 breed leaders who are versed in nature. Yeah, I think and, that's a big part of the change. And you yourself, Dougal, mm. in all that you do. I would love to hear a little bit more about you and your father and how it is working with him in this way, because both of you are lovers of nature Mm. and bring that into your leadership and getting close to nature. And what can leaders learn from you and from your relationship with your father and with nature, where going out into nature, as you as you mentioned, might not be possible for all leaders, but inviting people in who are close to nature and close to their own natures. How have you and your father brought this into Alistair Fleming design? He is uh, deeply connected to nature in his way. He's a very sensitive and thoughtful person and with any father-son relationship, uh, there are always, you know, differences in terms of where your point of origin, as I've already said, I've got quite a lot of my mother in me. And he has, a, you know, a very unique way of approaching life. And it really is a detail-driven approach. He's a mediator and he, he looks to get better and better and better at one thing. So, you know, what I've learned from him is huge amounts. He consistently delivers a very high quality service and therefore product. And the culture within our business is a reflection of him as a man. 
and the people who are drawn to the business and who've stayed in the business for a long time, they see him, they trust him. Maybe may not be too much to say they they love him um, because of the the high integrity that he has because he doesn't profess anything that he doesn't do. There is a a deep stillness, wisdom and beauty to him. I love him and I love working closely with him. And he's been doing it for a long time. And as he gets towards the end of his his time in in the business, he he really is empowering the team around him. And that also is a very beautiful thing to see. He's able to sit and listen and advise and it's quite intangible sometimes what happens and how he supports the team and often it is the team now often know what the answers to the problems that we come up against is and they they find those answers through talking to him and his instincts are so finely tuned that he can just say the right thing at the right time yeah, I'm not there. <laughs> not there yet. <laughs> Even with that skill. So he has this real sharp design eye. He knows when a design is wrong. He knows when it's right. And that, I think, is informed by his connection to nature. He spent a long time in woodlands looking at trees, feeling the power of the tree. The, the, wood is his material of choice. So I recently filled in the Ellen MacArthur Cyclitics um, questionnaire, essentially. It's, it's, a, it's a questionnaire to try and find out how cyclical your business is. So through a, a, you know, a range of metrics and analytics, it's a comprehensive questionnaire to answer. So kilowatt hours of electricity that your business procures, metric tons of virgin and non-virgin materials that your business procures, what you make how you make it, how long it lasts for, what do you do to ensure its longevity, what regenerative business practices do you have? I answered all these things right at the beginning of my learning around the circular economy. And the business came out at a B plus, um, which is pretty good considering we weren't trying to include any of the cyclical characteristics a b plus he's created through nearly 40 years of work uh, a business that by the modern standards um, is at that level so the the notion is that all of the kitchens we make the cabinets that we create will last the length of that building wonderful and that we have services in place to ensure that human desire for newness is quenched we all want a freshly painted kitchen or a freshen up, maybe once every 10 years, once every 20 years, perhaps. Once the carcasses are in place and, and the, you know, the, the design has been carefully thought through, then you can change other elements in order to freshen it up. That's something that we half do that we can get better at. So that's an area we're working on is how to upgrade, update, maintain someone's kitchen. And I would personally like to offer a trade-in. So he's been doing this for nearly 40 years. We've got a lot of customers out there who have old Alistair Fleming kitchens who could trade it in because those cabinets that we were making mm. 35 years ago still have structural integrity, they still have put the possibility to be reused. And there's lots of people out there who want an Alistair Fleming kitchen. And so that that is a potential new 
loop to add on to our business model. And this is one of the things that I've really got into uh, in detail is how to add cyclical loops into your business model to generate more revenue, to add value to your customers and to stop things going into landfill to make them last longer. Uh, and there are loads of loads of things. We've got solar panels on the ceiling. We've got new, you know, sort of much more efficient uh, lights. Um, we've got much more efficient heating in the in in all of our buildings. And we use Behesco, Brighton and Hove Energy Services company, Kayla Enter, who is I would describe a deep green. And she has really helped us project manage, find the solutions, implement those solutions, getting you know very good local businesses to do so carbon <laughs> the depot she does a brilliant job of making these tiny little green decisions all the time yes if you take these small steps to reduce your waste to reduce your energy to keep things working longer and to to be regenerative then before you know it you look over your shoulder and you've taken huge leaps forward and what the de- the depot is the most eco and green cinema on earth and it literally sits 200 meters away from the football field yes oh just over the tracks and so it's people like that that inspire me and that we kind of inspire each other i think you know to kind of keep making those things we're all feeding off each other in this community to try to make our space more considered more beautiful but also in tune with with the landscape we live within There are many things there that you've encouraged listeners to do by way of the small things that add up to a big thing when we look over our shoulder and realise that we've made a difference, not just on our own, but with others, that we have co-spired, that we've inspired each other through conversations, particularly conversations in nature, wherever that is possible. As we come to the end of our conversation today, what other if anything, key things could you recommend to a leader or to leaders working together on making a difference, albeit a small but incremental difference in their leadership towards a more sustainable, more environmentally Mm. friendly business? What three things? Um, I guess... One of the things that I haven't touched on, which I've found really powerful, is peer-to-peer learning. So through Alistair Fleming Design, we work with MD Hub, the Managing Director Hub, and um, Fiona and Phil, who run that, have, have created a network of other MDs who talk to each other about the issues that they are going through and field ideas on that. And that is really powerful because sometimes being an MD or being a leader can be lonely place. Yes. There's a lot of things that you have to have a steer on. No one else often in these businesses is there with you to share that burden. So I think if the leader needs help, mm-hmm. then look to find a local peer-to-peer network. If there isn't okay. one, find we other leaders one. that you like and go and hang out in nature and make those decisions. The other thing is... Um, so as I'm starting to do now for them is to do workshops around the circular economy and the business model canvas. The business model canvas, I, is, you know, I don't read many books anymore. I'm a podcast listener. 
And I've listened to your podcast, Danny. There's Thank you. Really great episodes out there. And I'm, I'm obviously delighted and honored to be part of one of those. But one of the books I read was The Business Model Generator, how to create your business plan in one page. And it blew my mind. So what I do with this presentation is, is talk through the circular economy, all the different little loops, how that, what that means. You can only really do it through the diagram. So we walk through that and then we say, well, right, based on the learning that we've got from that new circular economy model and these principles that are now ticking away, suddenly there's all these opportunities that are available. All the difficulties become opportunities. How do we start again? If we were going to start from a blank canvas, what does it look like? Key collaborators, partners, suppliers, the industry. What do you need to do that? How much does that cost? And then what are you actually delivering? Really, what are you delivering your customers? And what else could you deliver? How can you disrupt the industry? How do you find your customer? What relationship are you expecting to build up with them? Who is your customer? All the different kind of categories that your customer could fit into. And then how do you generate revenue? In one page, you can get a really quick snapshot You've spoken a lot about adventuring outwards, but I know you've also adventured inwards and given quite a lot of thought to your own leadership journey, your inner journey. Who has helped you on that journey? Well, in recent times, Annabelle Shilton of the MD Hub has been really helpful in helping me understand the type of leader that I am and the type of leader that I need to be in order to step into a more senior position within my father's business. And that really has been centered around research that's been done, understanding your propensity as a person, my propensity, how I perceive myself, and vitally how I perceive others to perceive me. And the discrepancy between the two, which is really interesting, And she's asked me questions around, you know, what do you think about this? And then how do you think other people think you think about this? And it just awakens these little things inside, which become really powerful to constantly be playing out in your head. Behaviors, you know, if I want to be a leader, I have to behave like a leader. And I can often uh, undermine myself in search of a joke even if that joke is really funny, which it often is, I perhaps shouldn't do it because it takes away the gravitas of the moment or the importance of that moment. And being aware of that is really, really difficult to do. And that's why it's been really helpful to have Fiona Schaefer, Phil Green, Annabelle Shilton, Kerry Kiriakou, Rob Day. You know, these are all people who I now find find a part of my sort of monthly monthly kind of conversations and they really really help to keep me focused to keep me concentrated. Dougal if people would like to find out more about you and about the circular economy the butterfly diagram that you've mentioned donut economics and anything else that you've spoken about how best is it to get in touch with you? I'm not going to try and pretend to be the uh, the place to go for circular economy. That is, it's the Ellen MacArthur Foundation that has really underpinned that. And her journey is very powerful, sailing around the world by herself, coming out of the boat, 
having an epiphany. The epiphany being, I had to take everything with me on this boat to travel around the world. I couldn't waste a single gram or space. She left a sailor and, and came out an economist. She set the foundation up. And that foundation is bringing in the biggest businesses in the world and being a sort of cyclical consultant around that. So if you want to learn about the circular economy, go and spend a few hours on the Ellen MacArthur Foundation website. It's powerful. There are local groups around. I joined up with the Brighton and Hove Circular Economy Group about, a, about two, two and a half years ago. And I'm not even sure I really understood it for the first year, but it was brilliant. It was really inspiring. In terms of donut economics, Kate Raworth, she created that concept really powerful. Again, instead of GDP versus time, the donut economic model addresses the UN human rights that, that one person can have. If you fall short of any of those 12 areas, then the economic model is failing you and is failing those, those groups of people. We cannot ever lose sight of the fact that our society is only ever as good as the people that it's failing. Everybody needs to be brought out of that. On top of that, then there's the, the overshoot on our ecological ceiling. If our economic activity is being detrimental to our planet, we've got to stop doing it. However important that resource is, or however important those products are, we have to stop doing it because we're damaging our earth. We can now measure that better than ever. So Ellen MacArthur and Kate Raworth, go find them out. They know far more than I do. What I like to do is to talk to people about that, try to inspire businesses. I'm right at the beginning of that journey. If people want to get in touch with me in regard to that, then it's rewildeconomics at gmail.com. Check out Alistair Fleming Design. That's the main hub for it all. That's where I work and what I love doing. And uh, Rewild Adventure, I do adventure tours around the South Downs. Uh, I have an Instagram page and a meetup page. So uh, sometimes I post up tours on meetup. But ultimately, I really do kind of private tours for, for friends, family, individuals, groups who want to explore the wilder paths of the South Downs, cycling, kayaking, team building games. And through that, we plant wildflowers, grasses, silver birch trees, oak trees, saplings in various different locations around the Downs in order to connect ourselves to those experiences. People can also find you on LinkedIn. Thank you so much. Thank you for being in conversation today, Dougal, and for inspiring not only me, but all the people who will, I know, listen and learn from you. And I'm confident we'll get in touch with you and follow some of the links that you've encouraged people to do. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you, Annie. Um, I just think it's wonderful what you're doing here and, and breaking down the barriers between, you know, some of the some of the things that people's have lived and experienced in their lives and it's such a great podcast and i'll uh, continue to listen from from now and until forever but yeah, thank you very much i'm honored to be one of your guests and i'm honored to have uh, been in conversation with you today and um, for listeners listening if you would like to listen to other leaders in conversation please do go to my website annietownend.com Follow me on LinkedIn, where I regularly post and reshare articles and blogs. If you would like to be a leader in conversation, please get in touch with me via email, annie at annietownen.com. I look forward to hearing from you. Thank you for listening. <laughs>